Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon to you. It is, of course, the final day of March. We're here on this Tuesday, March the 31st, and uh, wow, the quarter is behind us. What an amazing, uh, what an amazing beginning to the year. And I don't necessarily use <laughs> amazing in a very uh, positive fashion, that's to be sure. Well, once again, welcome to this edition of Lifeline. We're here each Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. And we'll do more of the same today. Kind of Coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program, we're going to kind of redirect our focus. While out of need and necessity, certainly we have focused on the impact of the coronavirus, what you need to know to be safe. Um, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that we are here in the Lenten season, and um, Easter, my goodness, is just uh, not even two weeks away now, and so we're going to spend some time focusing on the importance of this holy date on the Christian calendar. We're going to be joined by Danny Yohannan, Vice President of Gospel for Asia, and it's interesting, I've been reading a um, a daily devotional written by K.P. Yohannan called The Seasons of Lent. We'll talk a bit about that and um, why this time is so critically important as an opportunity for all of us to be refreshed and renewed spiritually. And boy, with everything going on in the news, if there was ever a time to be renewed spiritually, now certainly is the time. But let's focus first on some of the facts. There has been a number of um, number of reports related to some experimental drugs, um, some of which shows some promise, others of which, sadly, in the hands of People that, um, well, quite frankly, are not medical doctors, um, have been met with horrific results. Let's get an update on all this. We're joined by Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. She is the author of the best-selling, Your Doctor is Not In, Healthy Skepticism About National Health Care. And Dr. Orient, great to have you back on the program. Great to be with you. Let's first talk about the one drug that we've heard so much chatter about these days. In fact, I think even the mayor of New York is trying to engage in sort of a a mass clinical trial to see if it actually has any positive benefits, although we've also heard some sad cases where when it's self-prescribed can be literally life-threatening. And that is what we've been reading about uh, this medication typically used for malaria, hydroxychloroquine. Tell us about this. How promising is this? Well, the drug's been used for 70 years, and it's been used more recently for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, and people are not dropping dead when it's used for that purpose. It is always a pretty stupid idea to take an overdose of 10 times as much as been recommended by drinking fish aquarium cleaner, which has a lot of other things in it. And we had one couple that decided to do that on their own, and that certainly has gotten a whole lot more publicity than the very promising studies that are coming out of the rest of the world, including France and China. Using this drug is actually part of standard protocol in China now. In New York... Uh, Governor Cuomo is hoarding the supplies of 100,000 pills that were donated to him and is making it very, very difficult for physicians to prescribe or pharmacists to dispense outside of this controlled trial, which I'm afraid is being restricted to very, very sick hospitalized patients where it's least likely to work. This makes you wonder if they really hope that it's going to fail because other places in New York it's being used in people who are just developing mild symptoms, and it appears to have kept a lot of them from becoming, or most of them from becoming seriously ill. So it sounds like it has more preventative value to it 
than than restorative or healing value. Is that is that generally what you're saying? I think probably so. I get, but it does have restorative value too. There are case reports of of patients who were thought they were at death's door who turned around, their shortness of breath, their fever went away several hours after they took the hydroxychloroquine, especially if you combine it with azithromycin, a very commonly used antibiotic, and zinc. seems that maybe zinc is what does the job inside the cell, and the hydroxychloroquine helps the zinc get inside the cell where the virus is trying to proliferate. In any event, I just read today that in Italy they are giving it prophylactically, and they hope they can turn around this disaster that they have going on in their hospitals. You mentioned zinc. I think of that and another that typically folks use to sort of self-medicate when they're dealing with a typical common cold, and that's vitamin vitamin C. Um, In any doses, are any of these really proven to show any success? I know that doctors always get nervous when patients say, I read on the Internet and suddenly attempt to self-medicate. What are your thoughts on both what seem to be some suggestions of high doses of either zinc and or vitamin C? Well, it's always probably a bad idea to self-medicate without getting some medical advice. But what people are reading on the Internet are, are not just hyped-up hyped up, uh, stories, but actual medical literature that shows that zinc does have a favorable effect. But, you know, don't drink the whole bottle of it. A vitamin C, I think it's pretty hard to overdose on that because if you take too much of it, you'll get diarrhea and a lot of it will be eliminated that way. Unquestionably, your need for vitamin C increases when you're ill, and vitamin C is is necessary to help you fight off infection as well as to calm down or modulate the exuberant over-response that your own immune system can have that may be the the cause of death in, in a lot of these coronavirus patients. Uh, talk to me also, if you would, doctor, about uh, some of the warnings we've heard concerning ibuprofen. There are certainly some people that are on a routine regimen of this to control pain, but I understand with COVID-19 patients, it, it tends to exacerbate the disease. There is conflicting evidence on that. Some people say that you shouldn't take it, that it might exacerbate the disease. Others say that maybe it actually helps. I think it's a mistake to try really hard to get your fever down because your fever is one of your body's defense mechanisms. So anything you're using, whether it's ibuprofen or Tylenol, to suppress your fever could have the effect of uh, of making your symptoms or making the disease worse, even if it makes your symptoms momentarily better. Um, I'm going to pivot, if we can, for a moment to the response by the government. And and certainly there's a great deal of responsibility here the government has in being anticipatory and uh, and having the ability to pivot, stockpile, provide resources to physicians, to hospitals under crises of this sort. I have read recently that there's a couple of major failures here. One, of course, was shutting down the pandemic office inside of the White House a couple of years ago. Um, Secondarily, I read that there had been a stockpile that had been depleted back in 2009 on the heels of the swine flu epidemic that apparently uh, the stockpile of N95 masks was never replenished. And then, too, here locally in California, there had been a fairly sophisticated mobile hospital program that had been established by the state that was completely dismantled in 2011. It might be premature to discuss these issues today, sort of closing the door after the the, uh, the horses stepped out of the barn, but moving toward the future, and once the worst of this gets behind us, how much of a dialogue do you think, as a, as a medical professional yourself, how much of a dialogue do you think this nation, its political leaders, um, need to have in relationship to a better state of preparedness in this country? Our state of preparedness is really pretty terrible, and it hasn't improved much since 1918, even though $80 billion has been spent on it, on various bureaucracies and, and tabletop exercises and that sort of thing. But we did discover that we do not have the stockpiles of equipment that we should have, which is particularly serious given that we outsourced our manufacturing capability of this to China decades ago. 
so that not only are we on a just-in-time inventory, but we don't even have a supply line that starts in this country. And since China's been needing a lot of this equipment for itself, and a lot of its factories have been closed, then we're not getting the new replacements that we had, we had depended upon. Wow. The, the big question, of course, that seems to be lingering at the moment is whether or not the current guidelines that are in place and the president extending the quarantine for so many Americans, even as uh, local state municipalities have done the same, is it, in your professional opinion, enough? We see these numbers spiking and, and granted, trying to compare them against a country like China where we really can't be sure if the numbers they're reporting are anywhere near accurate. But as we look at this huge spike over recent days, has the action we've taken so far been enough, in your opinion? To, will time tell, or is it uh, perhaps a little, uh, little too much, a little too little, rather too late? Boy, that's that's a good question because the consequences of of the uh, lockdowns have been terrible. Small businesses are going to collapse and maybe never recover. People are losing their paycheck, maybe their job permanently. People are not able to get medical care that they that is important, even though it's not immediately life-threatening. Sections of hospitals are closed down, and their staff has nothing to do, and is maybe being fired while they're preparing for this surge. Now, we have a lot of modeling about what is going to happen, and a lot of experts are, are quibbling about whether it's accurate or not because there are so many assumptions that we don't really know what's, what's happening. But I think the, the most outrageous thing is that governors are deliberately stopping people, physicians and pharmacists, from doing things that might, might keep people from getting really sick, like the anti-malarials. Or you're not even allowed to talk about vitamin C. The, the um, big uh, social media giants are shutting down discussions about vitamin C while 50 tons of it was shipped to Wuhan and there are reports coming out of China of excellent results even in very sick patients who are treated with big doses of IV vitamin C. I think this is just unconscionable for the government to be and, and media giants to be shutting down discussions of things that may save lives and save people from ending up in the ICU to begin with. And at the end of the day, if anything is going to prove to be true, I think when this is all said and done, and that is that health care and decisions about same are better left up to the experts and not to the politicians. Dr. Well, Orient, we appreciate your time. Oh, go ahead, please. The experts um, may have the wrong impression, too. The bureaucrats may be experts. We need doctors on the front lines able to do what's best for their patients and respond to the information as it develops. Yeah, yes, and I stand corrected. That is precisely the kind of expert that I refer to, and that is experts like yourself, those who have degrees in the medical field, who are best equipped, have the greatest pool of knowledge and resources available to make these sorts of public health decisions. Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, also President of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. We appreciate so much your time. Information available, by the way, on the web at aapsonline.org. That's aapsonline.org. 518 on the clock. Let's get you updated now on some traffic. We'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center for the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was back about mid-January of this year, though it seems an eon ago, when a Washington State nursing home assumed, at least at first glance, that they were dealing with a pretty significant outbreak of influenza amongst their patients. Well, as we later learned, it was patient zero who had returned to Seattle from Wuhan, China, and either came in contact with someone who went to the life care center or maybe directly visited the life care center that began the spread of COVID-19 across the United States. In the ensuing weeks and months, of course, we have seen pretty frightening surge and just at that facility alone 35 faculty 
and residents have died. This, of course, is one of the more vulnerable populations in America, the elderly, that in many cases not only do not have the health or the immune system to fight off these types of um, viruses, but moreover, oftentimes already have significantly compromised immune systems. So, what can we learn of this? We're joined now by Dan Stockdale. Dan is a licensed healthcare executive and certified nursing home administrator. Dan has managed both assisted living and skilled nursing facilities from anywhere from 30 to 150 beds. And Dan, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Uh, Thank you, Craig. It's my pleasure. Something of this sort has got to be the nursing home administrator's worst nightmare, given the close quarters in which everybody works and resides in a nursing home or assisted living facility and the vulnerability of the personnel. Did this come across, as news reports seem to suggest, as big as a surprise as it seems to everyone else for the people that were working there at the Life Care Center in Washington? Well, I can't speak uh, specifically for life care, but I can tell you as an industry uh, that it certainly was a shock. Um, no one was expecting this, and uh, having been in the industry for well over three decades, I can tell you that I have personally never seen anything like this um, in my entire career. And certainly, you know, we're we're sort of... Um trying to process as much information as quickly as we can. Is there any understanding from from what you've read as to the number of nursing homes across the United States that reported COVID-19 cases? Uh, Yeah, at this point, uh, the official number that I last saw from CDC was 163. Um, I do have a source that has told me off the record that uh, that is actually up over 200 at this point. So, uh, it's definitely increasing in numbers, and you know, nursing homes are basically a microcosm of society. So uh, you're, you're going to see the ever more increasing numbers within nursing homes. Wow, and of course, given the level of vulnerability, I would imagine in most cases it almost is is a certain death sentence. I mean, that that seems the way things are playing out so far. And of course, that's got to strike terror in the heart of everyone who has a loved one who was in some sort of a rest home or nursing home or a skilled care facility. What are the best steps that can be taken, short of just shutting the doors, which I guess right now, at least in states like New York and California, that's exactly what we're doing. But what are the best steps that can be taken in order to help to to reduce the, the transmission in facilities like this? Yeah, and uh, I will say, yeah, there's an awful lot being done uh, at your local nursing home wherever you're at in the country. So, uh, you know, although initially in the early stages it may have been, uh, you know, a a lot more traumatic and jarring for uh, folks that have loved ones in nursing homes, uh, I don't want people to think it is a death sentence just automatically if they uh, are diagnosed with that. As far as steps that are being taken, uh, within our organization, I can say we're doing several things. Uh, as far we've been on lockdown, we were one of the first facilities and first companies to actually start locking down the building to all visitors. And uh, as far as steps that we're taking, there are several. Uh, all deliveries that are coming in, whether it's uh, food deliveries or medical supplies, whatever, uh, those are all open to meet. You know, they're cleansed first, sanitized outside the door and then the boxes are opened, and then we bring the individual packages into the facility uh, to ensure that nothing through the supply chain process has uh, caused any contamination to the boxes themselves or the product we're using. And we're even doing that with the mail uh, that the residents receive. So, uh, you know, we're doing that. As far as staff coming into the building, they, uh, the front door has to use hand sanitizer. The building's locked down. Someone who's on the shift currently has to let them into the building. They immediately have to report to the nurse's uh, office for to be screened before they're allowed to uh, clock in or go to the floor. So they uh, have to go through the temperature screening, the questionnaire. We're looking for signs and symptoms. Um, even if they're not expressing any, uh, the nurses are looking at them for you know, any kind of you know, profuse sweating or flushed uh, appearance to the face. 
and then after the temps, the temps and all that screening, they then report to the floor. So, you know, we have several, several measures in place, and that's typical of your local nursing home at this stage in this uh, virus outbreak. Well, cer- certainly that'll bring a lot of people relief to know that those sort of drastic measures are, are being taken, and obviously out of, you know, an abundance of caution and necessity in doing so. In locking these facilities down, though, I guess one concern is while we're looking at um, taking every step necessary to protect the physical well-being, what about the emotional well-being? How problem is it? I think of some people that don't get family visits as often as they'd like, others who get no family visits at all, and suddenly now we're seeing no admittance from outside by outside guests whatsoever. What can a person do from afar to help keep a family member's spirits up during times like these? Uh, you know, Craig, that is like, uh, I think that that's kind of the, the shining light in all of this is that we are finally seeing, uh, you, know, uh, you know, some of the traits that we see in other cultures and Asian cultures where they have a high regard for their elderly, and you actually find very few care facilities uh, because people take care of them in their own home. We're seeing such an outpouring from families, and I can tell you about 90 minutes ago, I was in a building in rural Nebraska, and as I walked by the front entrance, there was a lady in a wheelchair uh, sitting at the big glass panel at the front entrance, and there were about seven kids from the local school outside the window communicating with her. And, you know, that, those kind of scenes uh, are absolutely heartwarming, and it's, it's amazing to see that people within communities are starting to embrace the elderly again and actually show them the love that they so deserve. The, um, as far as the facility goes, what we are doing is uh, we are increasing the number of one-to-one activities that are taking place with the residents. So although residents can't really get out of their room to attend activities the way we could previously, we have staff going in there. If they are an av- were an avid fisherman, we're bringing in fishing magazines and you know, tuning in fishing shows for them. And uh, so we're doing all those types of things where it's very personalized to the individual and then also the social services directors are going into the rooms and visiting at least once a day and generally more often than that, uh, looking for just any, you know, communicating with residents and just to see if there's any signs of depression or anxiety and those types of things. So uh, there's an awful lot being done both in the facility and thanks to your listeners and everybody that's going to the nursing homes. Uh, you know, there's an awful lot of love being shown by the community and family members as well. Sounds like some solid advice, and um, you know, certainly during this time, we also need to show support for the hard work that's being done by all of these nurses and all the support staff that are working, you know, unbelievable hours with very challenging circumstances, and oftentimes with less than full staffing under, um, you know, again, uh, difficult levels of pressure. So we appreciate so much people like you, Dan, and. Uh, the folks that work at nursing home facilities across America for everything that you do for our loved ones. Well, thanks, Craig. But I I have to tell you, it's the hands-on staff that really makes it happen. Um, Our CNAs, our nurses, our activities professionals, our dietary food and beverage folks, they're the ones that are the heartbeat of the facilities. And um, it's my honor, honestly, to just work with them hand-in-hand. Dan, we appreciate the time and the encouraging words. Dan Stockdale, again, is a licensed healthcare executive, certified nursing home administrator. More information about his good work online at danstockdale.com. That's danstockdale.com. 531 from KFAX. We're going to get you an update here on traffic right now as we swing back over to the KFAX Traffic Center for the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. 535 here on this Tuesday, the final day of March edition of Lifeline. And, you know, while we have focused, and I think naturally so, on the immediate crisis at hand and the challenges that we are all facing, 
Um, and there's been some talk, to be sure, about the tragic loss of life in so many parts of the world outside of the United States. The one arena that we've not spent much time talking about, and that is this impact that COVID-19 is having on global missions and ministry work outside of the United States, oftentimes in countries that even under the best of circumstances can be challenging, but under the current set of circumstances makes it, well, if not for the grace of God, downright impossible. Joining me now is the Vice President of Gospel for Asia. We're pleased to have with us Danny Johannan. And Danny, great to have you with us again. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Um, your ministry, of course, and, and many folks that listen to KFAX, of course, big fans of uh, your dad, KP, and the broadcast ministry, and, and all that you guys have been involved with in overseas missions for so many years, and in specific, of course, the uh, gospel for Asia, focusing on um, incredible countries like India. And I've got to wonder, just looking at the big picture perspective right now, how challenging has this illness this pandemic been from a mission standpoint? And have we seen, uh, perhaps much as we have here in the United States, uh, not only difficult times, but also doors of opportunity open up? You know, I think we are living in a, a time that we've never seen, um, at least in my lifetime and many people's lifetimes. Uh, there are those that are maybe a little bit older, um, I was born just at the end of the time when they were giving smallpox vaccinations. And uh, the, the reality is there have been um, very catastrophic pandemics that have swept across the world. And um, the loss of life was in the millions and sometimes tens of millions. Uh, we haven't seen that sort of pandemic yet. But what we do see is such a crippling of society and such fear that is filling everyone's hearts. And right now, uh, the, the unfortunate ramifications of everyone living in fear and making decisions based on anxiety is that everyone is thinking about themselves and not considering their neighbors, not considering how their actions affect others. And we see what is happening around us in the grocery stores and other places where uh, people are literally hoarding things and you find those that are elderly or can't get to the stores fast enough are struggling. And so it is not just something that's impacting the, the uh, world of missions or ministry. Um, I, I do believe in terms of ministries, so many ministries are asking the same question right now, which is this. There is so much need around the world, and each ministry has their unique calling from God to help those that God has called them to help. And in the midst of fear, how do you ask the body of Christ to continue to stay the light in the darkness by prayer and by giving when everyone is thinking about how they're going to save and how they're going to survive and the reality is most of us can survive for quite a while with just the food that's up in our pantries. I was talking to a gentleman the other day, and he was uh, telling me that at his church the the offering giving is down because everyone is literally living in fear of what's going to happen next week or next month. And so, you know, on, in terms of, of ministries that are reaching out, whether you're talking about printing Bibles or food pantries or uh, work among, you know, the, the sex trafficking or work among children or helping, uh, you know, tell people about Christ across the seas. Every single ministry is struggling because people are thinking about themselves at the moment rather than realizing that Christ has called us to give our life away for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the kingdom. And that is the same call it's always been. When you think about the early church, the early church went through severe, severe persecution. And you think of the history of the church, where the church was the light in the middle of some of the darkest times of either disease or famine or war and all these different things. And so, you know, when I think of what's happening on the mission field right now in some of the places like India and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and Nepal and Southeast Asia, there are, you know, I know in India where some of my relatives are, 
um, it's 21 days of complete lockdown. Um, the, the government, the prime minister, has asked that everyone stay at home. And so you can't even go to the grocery store. I mean, here, at least you can go to the grocery store, you can go to the gas station. There, it, it's basically complete shutdown, lockdown, because of the, the possibility of spreading this disease very quickly. But in the midst of this, you also find that people can't even gather in, in churches. So they are having a prayer at home, church at home, literally going through the liturgies and the prayers and having their times of intercession at home and seeking God for the nation and leaders that God has placed over us. But you, you, uh, if you look at the Internet and you have to go to certain places to see this, literally what's happening right now, um, and most people don't realize it, is in places like India, you literally have millions of people that are migrant workers that are on the move. When the government has asked that everyone stay put, many of these people are saying, how can we stay put? We have no food. We have no, no way to survive. And so they literally are migrating back home. Many of these people have you know, gone across state borders or hundreds of miles away to work for six months to a year or three years at a certain place, and then they, you know, typically would go back home. But now you have millions of people on the move, and the government and others are trying to figure out what do we do? Because literally, while everyone is supposed to be saying put, you have one of our leaders said he walked outside to the main road, and it was like a sea of people, like a river of people flowing by, and bus stations, train stations, everything is just flooded with people. And many of the you know, Christian leaders and others are looking at this and saying, God, would you please be merciful and, and spare that this would not cause the disease to spread even faster through this nation. And so one of the challenges, you know, direct challenges to the ongoing efforts and work of the ministry is literally the 21 days, at least now 21 days, it could be extended, uh, shutdown where nothing is moving. No one is going anywhere. And so the, the spread of sharing Christ's love has to be now that neighbors are taking care of neighbors. People are watching out for one another. You know, I would encourage every church in America to be thinking the same way. We should be a light during this dark time. Every church should pay attention to the elderly in their congregation, checking up on neighbors, friends checking up on friends, asking one another, do you have toilet paper? Do you need food? If you need something, let us know. This is our chance to use this for God's glory, and that's exactly what's happening on the mission field. Now, by God's grace, just like every single other time that we've had like a situation, tsunami or an earthquake, or some natural disaster, we've always been on the front lines helping those in greatest need. And so also during this time where many of the government officials, local and state level, have approached us and asked us what we could do. And so already we have been able to put together and distribute many food packets. And that's one of the efforts that we can be doing while people are isolated in their homes you know, one of the greatest things I'm proud of is in the ministry is that all over the mission fields, we've had so many tens of thousands of people who have been trained in how to wash their hands properly, hygiene, keeping the water supply clean. We've given out tens of thousands of biosense filters where people can filter dirty water and get clean water for drinking. Tens of thousands of Jesus wells, bore pump wells that have been put in for clean water. And so by doing all these things these many, many years, we have actually prepared people all over to be able to handle situations like this. One of the greatest things, I know it sounds very silly, uh, I mean, you even have like, you know, my daughter singing Baby Shark, Wash Your Hands all day long. Uh, you know, it, it is true, washing washing your hands well and properly. I will say properly, not just washing your hands, but washing your hands properly and well and, and just doing these simple things, not touching your mouth and your nose and your eyes and keep your hands away from your face, which seems like you say that and then all of a sudden you want to touch your face. Uh, it, it is one of those things that can keep uh, disease down and the spread of bacteria and viruses. But I praise God that Gospel for Asia has been on the forefront of providing clean water, 
hygiene, education, and helping literally tens of thousands of children in our Bridge of Hope ministry to be able to be prepared for a situation like this. But at the same time, we must be praying for our leaders of our nation, President Trump and Vice President Pence, and many of the other nations, their leaders, where they have to make incredibly difficult decisions that God would give them wisdom and grace so that they can lead us. This has to be particularly a challenging time for ministry organizations like Gospel for Asia and others that are literally on the front lines all the time, Danny. And I say that because when there have been other world events, whether it's a tsunami or a massive earthquake or an outbreak of cholera, whatever it might be, it has always been something that's happened somewhere else, meaning that there have been other nations not impacted by such an event that are able to then step up, provide resources, both financial and otherwise, to help relieve suffering. The challenge here, of course, is this seems to be everybody at once. And my fear is that some of the least prepared, we we see how ill-prepared we are here in the United States in the so-called first world. I can't begin to imagine the the fear in the hearts of men, you know, the Bible in the end times talks about men's hearts failing for fear, and I can certainly see why when you may be in a situation where uh, there aren't the kinds of safety nets and the infrastructure to deal with something like this and help from the outside where normally you expect a cavalry to, you know, come riding into town. This time is not doing that because we're all simultaneously dealing with the horror of this pandemic. And, and so toward that end, I, I would imagine that organizations like yours that are so critically important on the front line of ministry in a very practical way under normal circumstances are really feeling the pressure right now. Yeah, I think I think it's one of those realities where um, those of us who live in what we call first world countries, a lot of times we face, you know, like all the memes that we read, uh, first world problems. You know, um, you know, when there was a, t- a Twinkie shortage, I mean, that was a first world problem, and literally people were going nuts over Twinkies disappearing. So it's it's one of those things where, you know, I remember growing up uh, on, in, in Asia, um, but I also grew up here. So I have an interesting perspective. I remember most of the week, at least three days out of the week, there was no electricity. That was just normal. Um, to get water, we would go to the well outside and throw a bucket in the well and pull the water up, and we would filter it through a towel to get the mosquito larva out, and then we'd boil it and filter it. That was normal. So, you know, it was, it was very normal for us to walk 45 minutes to church every Sunday. That, that was not abnormal. And so... I think, you know, when, when, you, when you talk about the, the challenges and suffering and difficulties um, in some of these nations, um, it, it's not going to be that, you know, the uh, scarcity of electricity or scarcity of, of certain things where people have to walk. Those things terrify us. I remember one time here, you know, in, in Wills Point, Texas, there were some really bad storms a couple of years ago, and it knocked out the power for three days. Literally, I, I think I think everyone in the whole area was was like zombies walking around, didn't know what to do. They were you know going to McDonald's to charge their phones because they didn't know literally what to do for those those times. And you know it, that doesn't happen in these countries. But what does happen is you know the situation where people can't actually go out and get food. That that's the difficulty where. Um, stores don't have food because there there isn't any trucks driving to bring food to the stores. It's not the same thing like in America where people are hoarding food and just just a lack of food because people are hoarding it. If everyone would just buy as they normally buy, there would be plenty of food. Uh, but this is a situation in some of these in some of these countries where you know there is no food. Uh, there, there is there is no um, opportunity for the kids to go to school. You know, my kids right now are doing online schooling because their school decided the rest of the year they got to do online schooling, and so that, that worked out. But many of these children, you know, millions and millions of children, uh, their education basically stops. So you have, a, you have a drastic compounding effect where food, clean water, people's education, futures, jobs, um, the entire networking community has stopped. And so... You know, then you talk about business and trade and everything on top of that. Now, the answer to all of these things absolutely 
is that people should not live in fear, and it is that our hope and trust is in God. And then after we get through this, and every country will get through this, absolutely they will. And we've gone through greater and worse things around the world. But here's what I, what I fear the most, is that Christians, if they don't learn globally how to trust God through this time right now, they will not continue trusting God even after things are okay. We will have set a precedent in our heart to live with anxiety and fear. This is why during especially this Lenten season, which is, you know, next week, next Sunday is, is Palm Sunday, and the following week is, is Easter, this is a great opportunity to begin praying every single day, make it a habit of prayer, a rule of prayer, that we pray the Lord's Prayer daily, that we use the Jesus Prayer, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, that we pray the Jesus Prayer often, and we set our heart like flint, flint that we can, we can face these difficulties. You know, I remember talking to this, this one young person, and they were going through some struggle in life, and, and you know, <laughs> the it's almost like the disciples going across the Sea of Galilee where they faced the great storm and Jesus is asleep in the boat. And you read the passage, and as soon as the storm is calmed by Jesus and everything is fine, Jesus speaks to them, peace be still, they end up on the shore, and who gets to meet them there? It's, it's the two demon-possessed men that are, you know, wandering around the graves. And, and, you know, for many, many Christians, their perspective is not who is in the boat with me. Their perspective is like, what, great, I just went through this horrible storm. What else trouble is waiting for me in the future? And many Christians, they live from tragedy to tragedy rather than from trusting God to trusting God. And that is something that I believe in the East, that people have learned because of persecution and suffering is a normal way of life. And just because we are a Christian does not mean that suffering goes away. In fact, it just means that you get more suffering, but you get to trust God even greater. So a lot of times, they have a greater faith than we even have, because they've learned to trust God through difficulties all the time. So many of them are actually praying for us. They are literally praying for us that God would sustain us during this time. And so this is the challenge for those of us that are on you know, the, the front line serving is that we would be an encouragement to others not to give up, but the challenge and encouragement for the, the church in the West is that we would not lose the opportunity to lift our eyes above this problem and see that the fields are ripe for harvest. When Jesus spoke that to the disciples, the disciples were consumed about their hunger for food, and it was just after Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, and Jesus told the disciples, lift up your eyes, the fields are ripe for harvest. And he was talking about the people. And my, my fear is that so many of God's people will get so consumed and caught up with trying to save their life and their comfort. And what God has allowed us, he hasn't done this to us, but he will use this in our life, is to help us to realize that many of the things that we think are so essential for our survival is not really important. And for those who don't know God, it will tell us how, how fragile life is. And may God use this to draw many unto his love. And may God also help us to also show Christ as the light of the world that we can bring hope to people's lives. You know, it's funny, just about uh, oh, two weeks ago now, I guess, um, at a table at the station, I picked up a copy of your dad's little Lenten booklet called The Seasons of Lent, Stepping Stones to Spiritual Renewal and Growth. And I've been enjoying it, reading through it here over the last couple of weeks, kind of preparing my own heart for Lent. And, and early on, and I think this is, this is key, early on, your dad in the booklet talks about the notion that this time of year in particular, as we mark Easter and the Lenten season, and most importantly, Christ's victory over sin, death, and the grave, um, he talks about the fact that the Lenten season has always stood for accelerated spiritual growth. And when every time we 
log on, we look at the news online, we pick up the phone and call a friend, a family member, a neighbor, or we turn on the TV set, it's all gloom and doom and death and loss of life and suffering. And I think, wow, isn't it fascinating that this disease here in America and globally is hitting its peak, some estimate will happen just around Easter itself. And the notion that as we focus on the negative side of all of this, that God really wants us to focus on the positive side, that that death and destruction and fear and doubt and things of this sort that are all a result of sin in our world, they're with us all the time. It might be amplified at the moment, but this is something that happens and has happened since the beginning of time, since the beginning of that mistake that Adam and Eve, our forefathers, first made in the Garden of Eden, and we've carried this burden of the impact of sin and the scourge of sin on humankind ever since. But Christ gives us victory over this. We have victory over sin and death and the grave. And I think in particular, Danny, this time of year to think about not the kind of death that we're all fearful of, but rather the victory over death that Christ won for us in his work on the cross on our behalf and the significance that it should and needs to have for every single believer, particularly during this Lenten season. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, I remember reading something very interesting and significant. Um, it's, it's kind of looking at the, the whole idea of the resurrection uh, slightly different. Usually, you know, most of us are used to a picture of the resurrection uh, of a solitary individual, you know, Jesus rising from the dead, which is absolutely true. It's not, it's not wrong. But actually what you said is, is by death, Christ conquered death, and sin, Satan, and death was conquered on the cross. And it is those we read that were waiting in paradise for Christ, Messiah, to lead them to victory. And so when we celebrate Easter on Resurrection morning, we are not just remembering Christ who rose from the dead, defeating sin, Satan, and death, but we are remembering that Christ is victorious, and he led the captives free, and we see that it is a, a cloud of witnesses that were led by Christ during this time. And that should tell us, it should encourage our life, that we live a victorious Christian life. We follow a victorious King, and that is why we celebrate. Not just because Jesus came out of the grave. I mean, Jesus also walked on the water. So if it's just coming out of the grave, I mean, that's not as big a deal as, you know, he raised other people from the dead. So, I mean, just the whole idea that Christ conquered sin, Satan, and death, and like you said, you know, Lent is an accelerated time for spiritual growth. It is, one, you know, when I was in, in gymnastics for many, many years, there was a time for uh, refining our skills, but there's also a time for conditioning. And I hated the conditioning time because that hurt more than any other time. <laughs> I'd rather just do the refining the skills part. And so you have a season of great Lent, you know, usually starting, uh, about 40 days back, and it's a time of fasting. Some people fast meat, some people fast coffee, chocolate. Some people get really angry. I tell them, don't fast from coffee, because then they just pretty much make everyone miserable around them. Uh, but, I, <laughs> you know, it, it is one of those, those opportunities to say, you know what, purposely I'm going to spend time in prayer, repentance, and, and fasting. And, and it is a difficult season. It really is a a difficult, challenging season, because it is a conditioning season. It is a purposeful uh, examining our heart, praying along with the psalmist, 139, you know, search my heart, O God. It's not very fun. But in that conditioning time, our, our spiritual life is strengthened, so the rest of the year we can refine our walk with God, and, and we can see God's strength and miracles working in our life. And so this is what the Church has always done from the very beginning. This is what God's people have always engaged in. And so, you know, this, this, this reality of the coronavirus, it, it is a devastating thing. I don't want to make light of it, uh, but I do believe that for Christians around the world, it is a, a, an opportunity for us to practice what we say we believe. If we truly believe what we say we believe, and the scriptures that we memorize, and the faith that we follow, then we can you know, walk forward in boldness, trusting God. That doesn't mean we'd be careless or disregard what 
the authorities have told us, absolutely, we should be the best citizens of every nation. But at the same time, we should not live in fear. You know, we, we are told that God knows every hair on our head, every sparrow that it falls, every blade of grass and every flower, and He loves us even more than all those things. And if that's true, then we can trust God absolutely day by day, but we can also not miss this chance to grow in our spiritual life, because there is no growth in our spiritual life without suffering. I'm sorry, it just does not work that way. James tells us that rejoice when we face difficulties in our life and trials and temptations, because the testing of our faith produces patience, and patience produces maturity. And this is the only way to spiritual maturity is through difficulties and suffering. And so if we see God's hand through this, we can trust Him that He will work this out even in our life, even though the entire world is spinning out of control. We know that God is in control. Some solid and encouraging words, and I appreciate, Danny, you taking some time out of your schedule. I know things are hectic with the ministry right now and all the challenges that are being faced across the globe, and particularly as you delineated uh, much of what's going on in India right now. I, I can't imagine having a, a everybody-go-home order coming and then suddenly be told, wait, nobody move, and, and dealing with literally more than three times the population size of the United States. We can't handle things here alone with all the advantages we have. Just imagine and how challenging things are in India. So, a good time to be in prayer and to also remember, as we normally do during seasons like this on the Christian calendar, um, to pray for organizations like this and to also support them. If you want to get more information about the work and ministry of Gospel for Asia, it's easy. Just check them out online at gfa.org. That's gfa, think Gospel for Asia, gfa.org. You also might want to drop them a note and tell them you'd like to get a copy of this um, handy little book that I've got here that's been written by Dr. K.P. Yohannan called the Seasons of Lent, Stepping Stones to Spiritual Renewal and Growth. And uh, certainly very timely for not only this time of year, but the challenges we're currently facing. Danny Yohannan, Vice President of Gospel for Asia, thanks so much for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. All right, we're here at 6.02. That means time for us to get you updated on some traffic. And we'll step aside, let that happen right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. <laughs> 